Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, lead pastor of Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith so you experience the goodness of God and the greatness of your unique voice in His kingdom. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at overflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional on amazon.com. question this morning. Does anybody in the room really, really want to know Jesus? I mean, you would say right now that the hunger of your heart in the midst of the days that we're in, what you want more than anything else in the world is simply to sit at his feet and find your hope there. Anybody in the room? Yeah? Awesome. This is the way the Apostle Paul expressed that many years ago in the book of Philippians. He said this, He said, all of the accomplishments I once took credit for, I've now forsaken them and regarded all as nothing compared to the delight of experiencing Jesus Christ as my Lord. To truly know him meant letting go of everything from my past and throwing all of my boasting on the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. My passion is to be consumed with him. Come on, would anybody say, I've got to know Jesus like this? That's the goal of my life. That's what I'm looking for more than anything. I've got to know him this way. If that's you, I rejoice this morning with you. But we've got to know something. For all of us, somebody say all who deeply desire to know God. At some point between our spiritual childhood and our spiritual adulthood, we're going to encounter something. It might be the loss of innocence or a wound or a deep trial. For all of us, we're going to encounter it once, but almost certainly a number of times in our faith where we reach the place where yesterday's faith won't work anymore. We'll find ourselves flooded with deep questions and mysteries and doubt. And and when it happens in your life, it can be disorienting. It feels like the floor is falling out from within you. It can be scary. Philippians chapter 3, the chapter that I just read about all those great things about I've got to know Christ, he goes on and he says this. He says, if you truly want to know Jesus... It means that you're going to know him in his victory and his suffering. Our spiritual forefathers referred to that as a dark night of the soul or as wilderness wanderings. And today we live in a culture where we hear all this talk about deconstruction or walking through trauma, but I'm convinced we're talking about the same thing. See, it's nothing new. Jesus told us this is the story that we're in to the disciples in the book of John, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. One of the people he spoke that to was his disciple Peter, and Peter got it so deeply that later he wrote to the church and said this, beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In case we missed it, here's another 25 places in the Bible that we see that we are destined for trials. And by the way, I selected just the tip of the iceberg. Because what we find, if you will read through the pages of the Bible, is that in story after story, we meet people who are formed by God in dark spaces that can only be called a wilderness. Joseph was told by God, first by his dad that he was favored. He got a coat of many colors. His coat looked much better than my coat. But then he heard from God that he was going to rescue his people. But it came first through a wilderness. His brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous. He was cast into prison on a false charge, and in all, it was 22 years of wilderness before he was raised to power in Egypt, where he did what? He rescued the people, just as God said. Moses was to be the shepherd to lead the people of Israel, but not before 40 years in the desert where he was learning to tenderly lead stubborn sheep. The Israelites were called into the promised land where they would bless all nations of the world, but first they were led to 40 years in the desert where they would learn to rely on God's blessings and not themselves like the rest of the world. David, as Pastor Aaron shared powerfully last week, was called to be king. But it was 15 to 20 years from the time David was anointed until he reached the throne. And most of that time, he found himself in a desert and in a cave running for his life. And that was the setting where God matured the man after his own heart. Elijah would call the people back to the father. He actually spent time in the wilderness twice. At the start of Elijah's ministry, he was fed miraculously in a desert and hidden for the fullness of time where he'd come. And then he came out, and right after his incident with the prophets of Baal, he was led again into the wilderness, into a cave, where the Father revealed his heart through a whisper. John the Baptist would prepare the way for the king, but first he would have to prepare himself in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul, at the start of his transformation from being a violent murderer of Christians to influential Christian to ever shape history was sent by the Holy Spirit for three years into the desert of Arabia. Indeed, Jesus himself, after being baptized and before starting his ministry, spent 40 days in the desert. The desert is a place of solitude. The desert is lonely. You find when you're in the desert, there's nobody else really around you that quite understands. The desert is a place of pressure. You feel the blistering heat some days, but other nights you feel the bitter cold. In the desert, you find that your future is uncertain. There is no five-year plan when you're in the desert. You've lost all confidence in your understanding and your abilities and your beliefs to figure it out. Can I ask this morning... Has anybody spent any time in the desert or the wilderness? Has anybody found themselves there? Perhaps you're there right now. Maybe it would help you to know that the Hebrew word for desert is from the same root word, to speak. See, I want to submit to you this morning that the desert is the intimate place where God longs to speak to us 
and just like he did at the very beginning, to form us from the dust into his image. The deepest question for you and I today is not if we will go through trials that will break our hearts and attempt to break our spirits. It's where will we look when we do? Whose report will we trust? That determines our destiny. And so with that, I want to give you my big thought for this morning. It's this. The deserts of your life will either ultimately refine you or they will come to define you. The desert of your life will either ultimately refine you or else they will come to define you. What do I mean? The desert can refine you. You can find when you're in the place of the desert that you actually get the clarity to understand that this earth is not our home. You can echo like Paul did in Romans 8 that our momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. In the desert, you can hear God speak. You can surrender control. You can choose faith like a child. You can become more like him. In the desert, you can be refined, or you can let the desert define you. You can live as a victim as if your trauma is the biggest thing and is more real than the God who is longing to form you again from the dust. You can trust your understanding as if it's true. You can try to control your circumstances and rage within when your plans fail. You can turn at every corner and lament that you just can't catch a break, that life works for everybody else but you. In short, you can get bitter and not better in the desert. The desert will either refine you or it'll define you. And we're all going to walk through the wilderness. So I would say you and I desperately need a guide in the darkness for our wanderings to help find our way. And there we find the words of Psalm 23. Pastor Aaron shared these last week with us. I want to read them again to you this morning. Right in the middle of Psalm 23, it says this. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I want to talk about hope this morning for when we find ourselves in the wilderness and we find ourselves in the desert and we find ourselves in the valley. And I want to start right with David's words who certainly knew what it was to walk in a desert. He starts with these words, even though, even though means it's inevitable. Even though means it's going to happen. Hard places are inevitable, but they don't invalidate the promises or the provision of the shepherd. He goes on, he says, even though I walk. That word walk in Hebrew means a whole lot more than it means to us in English. It means a manner of life, a way, a path, or a place I'm being carried. David says, I've seen in my life with God a problem. Sometimes I'm doing my best to follow God and do what I believe is his path. I'm trying to follow his leading, and it's taking me into a dark place. Can anybody relate? He said, the manner of my life, I'm trying to walk here, but I feel like I'm being carried beyond my control into a dark place. And he defines the place as a valley. I love the definition of a valley. It's a low place with lofty sides surrounding. See, there's danger with being 
in the valley. In the valley, you are exposed in plain sight to any predator. Like Anakin to Obi-Wan, you don't have the high ground when you're in the valley. You're in the place where everything you can see is a place where an enemy can come and attack. And, and David goes on and says it's not just a valley, but it's a valley of the shadow of death. In Hebrew, that's just one word. It means death shadow or deep shadow. More specifically, it means to be caught and surrounded and enveloped by distress and darkness and extreme danger. It means the grave where the dead things are. The picture David gives us is this, is of a man who is trying to have God's heart and to walk faithfully, who, finally, who suddenly finds himself surrounded where he can't see anything, and where he is is like he's walking through a cemetery. He's the only thing alive and all he can see around him are no signs of life. There's only the pain of his dead dreams and his dead hopes and his dead plans. And meanwhile, as he has to walk in this place, all of the places he wants to go are inaccessible because they're up the lofty sides so he can see all around him all of the life and all of the celebrating and all of the dancing. But for all he can do, he just can't get there. When you're in the valley, it's easy to spin your soul trying to control your circumstances so you can escape. And yet, David says in the midst of this verse that even though I'm walking through this valley, I'm deciding to respond differently. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm learning to fear no evil. The word fear in Hebrew, it means to revere, to be in awe of, to make much of to respect, to terrify, or honor. He said, I fear, no, that word no is nothing. It's an absolute prohibition. It means there's no exceptions. And what David's about to say, there are no exceptions. There's never a circumstance or a day where he walks where this promise of the shepherd won't be true. I'm in a valley. It feels like the shadow of death, but I'm not going to make much of any evil. The word evil anything that is bad, anything that is evil, anything that is disagreeable, anything that is malignant, sadness, anything unpleasant, that which brings pain, any unhappiness, any misery or injury or calamity or distress or unkindness. What is David saying in the midst of all of this? He's saying, even though I find that I'm walking in valleys of broken and bad and unkind and miserable and painful things, I refuse to make fear the way I walk. I refuse to make fear my manner of life. When I'm under any external or internal stress, I refuse to make fear the way I walk. When I'm faced with any unkind attitude or action, I refuse to make fear the way I walk. When I'm in any unpleasant circumstance, I refuse to make fear the way I walk. When I'm facing any disagreeable personality, come on, we know some of those in our lives. I refuse to make fear the way I walk. Despite any attempt you may have to injure me or bring me pain, 
I refuse to let it define me and make fear the way I walk. Throughout any misery, big or small, I refuse to make fear the way I walk. I will not magnify these so they distort my view of my present path. I will not dignify these with the respect to control my emotions, and I will not deify these as if they possess the authority to direct my days. Like an expired coupon at the grocery store, my redeemed soul doesn't honor these. They can't be cashed in. Why? Not because they aren't real. Not because I'm not in a valley. Not because my heart isn't broken or my path isn't unbelievably hard. No, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rock, your staff, they comfort me. We've got to remember the story we've come from. Joseph was sent in prison, but it says in the book of Genesis that Joseph was in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph, and he fulfilled his promise. He brought him to glory, just as he said. And can I tell you that the Joseph who came out of prison looked a whole lot more like Jesus than the Joseph that went in? The Joseph that went in was bragging to his brothers about all he was going to do. The Joseph that went out had the humility to save a nation. Moses was in the desert. The Lord was with Moses, redeeming his wilderness by making it the headquarters to form the most patient man who ever lived. The Moses who came out of the desert looked nothing like the Moses who went in. The Moses who went in got angry in the desert and killed a man. The Moses who came out had millions. I'm sure he wanted to kill sometimes. <laughs> and yet he walked with patience. The Israelites wandered in the desert, but the Lord was with Israel feeding them every day with manna from heaven and water from a rock the same way our Savior would come to break open his body and his blood to feed our souls in the desert we're standing in. In the wilderness, that was the place where their hearts softened and where their souls were strengthened to trust his faithfulness over their fears and their feelings. David was on the run in the wilderness, but the Lord was with David, becoming the strength of his heart and his portion forever. This man in the wilderness didn't let him define it. He just wrote lots of praise songs to say, this is how great my God is. Our desert will either refine us or define us. David said, it's going to refine my heart. Elijah was in the wilderness, but the Lord was with Elijah, revealing his affection to him in a whisper, in his adoration by a chariot of fire, ushering him straight into the wraparound presence of his embrace. What does it tell us? It's this, that in my very worst moments, I can know I'm okay because I'm not focusing on the shadow. I'm looking at the shepherd. Your desert is either refining you or it's defining you. My question for us this morning is this, where is your hope? Come on, I want to make a promise to us today. I want us to remember who we are today. I want to promise you that the day is coming where our Savior will appear through the clouds and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We are eternal that every word he ever spoke about us is true. We will see that this is like a vapor. It was like the blink of an eye. 
It's like a grass that fades quickly, that our hope and our home are not here. One day, we join the cloud of witnesses to find that our longings were not fully realized here because we're waiting for a better country. We will see him face to face. We will join Job saying, once we see the, the gaze of our father, that he is up to things too wonderful for us to express. The day will come where we will see this was a dream and we will awaken to an eternal reality more real and tangible than anything we've ever known. I want to promise you as you hear my voice that one day we will stand together on the other side of this valley and we'll delight when we finally see that all death ever was, was a shadow. And the substance called Jesus took our hands, even in our blindness, and he led us all the way through. My question this morning is, where is your focus? Come on, can we just be real and vulnerable this morning? I'm preaching most of myself. Are we living like the shadow is the biggest thing in the road so that we can't see the shepherd leading us through the valley. I would ask the question this morning, what will we do on the road today? How will we spend our wilderness? And it's here i got to stop for a minute and be honest. The heart of a shepherd, a father, a teacher, who spends my life before the saints calling us up to see clearly, reminding my soul on my knees to see clearly who our father is and all the shadows that are around us. We stand culture, that on one side it's beautiful, that we've made all kinds of space in all of our outlets to talk openly and honestly about pain and hurt and trauma and heartbreak, and that's awesome, and that's amazing that we brought it out of the shadows and into the light, but can I tell you something I'm seeing today? And I'm seeing it largely by Christians on the front lines. I'm concerned in many ways we're making an idol out of trauma. I listened to us speak in an almost romantic sense. Like it's a, a, a codependent, abusive relationship. This is just our reality. This is just the way it is. And nobody could possibly understand. And so I'm going to go lay down alone with a lie and close the door. That's what abusive relationships do. Nobody can understand. Nobody can see it. This is just the way it has to be. This is my trauma and my pain. And I listen to us as we define and lament as if it's the most real thing. We live in a day where we call everything trauma. And I think when we do that, the greatest danger is we insult and hurt and alienate the people that are actually walking through very deep traumas. Listen, my whole life is to be before people in the midst of their brokenness. That's what I do. That's what we do as pastors all the time. You want to know why I come through and I celebrate so much? Because I hear so much brokenness. In the past 25 years, I've heard gut-wrenching words. They could only be called trauma. But I've also had a lot of people sit before me and call trauma something that as I listened was just the regular growing pains of navigating a broken world that every person has had to mature under since Adam. And when we call that trauma, we relinquish our responsibility to be refined in the midst of the wilderness. Yeah. When we show up and call growing pains 
trauma, when the whole story said it was going to be true, when we call that trauma, we relinquish our responsibility. I'm the victim. I don't need to be refined here. I need God to come through, and God's unjust, and God's not fair. It's not trauma. It's an invitation to maturity. I've listened to people share stories of real abuse, where when you hear where they live day in and day out, it drives you to your knees. But can I tell you, what I've heard more than anything from Christians of all ages is the trauma of jobs they just don't find fulfilling or meaningful. Let me go a step further, and I hope I don't step on your toes. If I do, kick the shoes off. They're not yours to wear. I've heard people talk about how God's not being fair in the midst of the job they don't find meaningful, and it's the job they got trained for. They never actually went and did the training for any other job, and so they're expecting to plant no seed in the ground and see a harvest. They're getting mad because the skill that they have that they can be paid for is being offered, but they want to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and they've never trained for that. And they've never spent the time doing that. And they say, oh, my trauma. And I say, no, it's an invitation to maturity. And maybe, just maybe, if your whole life is you just really want to know Jesus, here's my question. Anybody? Anybody have a job? Hands up. Anybody have a job? Hands up. Okay, some of us need to get to work, y'all. Let me ask one more time. <laughs> what are y'all doing? Anybody have a job? Hands up. Okay. Here, here's my second question. Do any of you have people that work at your job? Oh my gosh, if your greatest prayer is to know Jesus, then guess what you just told me? I have a mission field I get to go to every day where I get to develop depth. But yet we talk about trauma because it's just not my favorite job in the whole world. It's not my dream job. And we call it trauma, and when we call it trauma, we relinquish our responsibility. I'm going to go a little deeper. Sometimes you're preaching something and you feel like you're about to give the message that's the one that Jesus gave when the crowd suddenly went down to just the disciples. <laughs> but I'm going to do it because anything less is not the glory of God. I've lamented as a pastor as I've heard things you won't imagine done to people in the name of God from clergy and churches that have let sin run rampant in their walls. I've cried and I've wept with people as those who were supposed to open a gateway to Jesus became an abuse blocking them from seeing his name. But can I tell you that I have also watched many, many more lament under church hurt as they lived in the midst of beautiful and loving yet imperfect church families completely missing the opportunity to step deeper into vulnerability and honesty and healing as they stay together and mature as a family. I've watched college students, not in this room, I've watched college students grow up and berate their parents for every place their parents failed, and here's the deal. I had walked with them since their youth. I saw all the things their parents did, and they were loving and beautiful people, but imperfect. They weren't their savior. They fell short, and all I can hear is, well, I just have all this hurt. I just can't trust anybody from the other generation because I've experienced all this trauma, and nobody but me and my group of friends can understand. So we're just going to lay down in this lie, and if you come any closer, then you're bigoted. When you call that trauma, you relinquish your responsibility to be refined, and you leave yourself the only option that that desert's going to define you. You're going 
to grow bitter. I've heard people endure hurtful accusations, nasty gossip, and character assassination of people vilifying them and scapegoating them. But can I tell you the truth? I've also heard a lot of trauma that are people just not feeling as centrally recognized as the others in their group of friends. Is they lament that God's just not fair and life doesn't work out. And I want to tell you, when I hear these things, what I hear is an orphan spirit that is letting the shadow of fear loom larger than the substance of the Father. I fear sometimes we make an idol out of trauma. And I think sometimes we make an idol out of trauma because we've made idols out of a whole lot of other things that aren't working out, so we're mad at God. We make an idol out of our jobs. We make an idol out of our love life. We make an idol out of our family and what we want that to look like. We make an idol out of our financial situation. We make an idol out of the reports of our health, even though we're just here for a moment passing through. We make an idol about our comfort. And I think what starts to happen is we have such an embarrassment of riches of the kindness of God. Anybody who has the ability to hear my voice right now, we're the richest 1% of the entire globe. God has been kind to us. God has been good to us. And we have so many blessings that we're swimming in. I think sometimes we get entitled to actually believe that blessings are due us on our schedule that God owes us. I want to tell you whenever that happens, and I find it happen in my life, it becomes easy for the enemy to discourage you because you've empowered lots of shadows in the road to obscure your sight from your Savior. And it has to stop. Because if we won't let the desert refine us soon, it will define us. Now I want to tell you, I've learned better things for us, Overflow Church. Somebody say, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. That's not the whole story. I want to tell you that I'm watching in our family every day. You walk in a way that defies that saying. In the midst of the shadow, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for I see God with me. Can I tell you two stories before we pray? about people I want to celebrate in our family. The first one is my brother, Ephraim Sotomayor. Ephraim, 10 years ago, found himself driving down the road in perfect health when he saw a stranded motorist. Because Ephraim is a kind and compassionate man, as was his norm. He stopped and he got out and he helped push her car, only shortly later to find himself experiencing a heart attack that threw him right in the very shadow of death. to retire. He lost all of his income. For the last decade, my brother has gone in and out of hospital room after hospital room after hospital room on and off of transplant lists. Massive amounts of money accrued not only in bills but in people to come alongside and help pay them. More procedures than you could possibly imagine. He just got out of the hospital again. And can I tell you, every time I talk to Ephraim, every time, this is what he says, my God's been good to me. He saved me again. My God's been good to me. When Ephraim goes in the hospital, I want to tell you I've heard so many stories. Ephraim is going to witness to the wallpaper if he gets a chance. <laughs> every administrator, every nurse, every doctor, when they walk in, he says, I need you to understand something. My God is good all the time. And let me tell you, that carries a different weight when you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And nonetheless, you fear no evil, but say, my God's been good to me. Second, I want to tell you, 
is my dear sister, Pastor Ruth. Just over a year ago, Ruth, in the midst of perfect health, found herself wrestling with an unknown incident, walking through months of pain and the unknown and no good answers. I was there alongside her when there were weeks that she had to spend completely in the darkness with only a loved one or two and some worship music. just the quiet one that would come, just singing God's promises over her again and again and again. And as she came out of that time, even to this day, the answers have been less than satisfactory, but I have watched as she and Graham and Griffin and Brandon have kept holding on to their faith and bearing good fruit. I watch her, and I watch her family as they are walking out healing. And can I tell you something? They have good days have bad days, but I dare you to find a louder voice here that is going to challenge you to get out of your pity and shame and see the goodness of God and shout it again and sing it again. And I want to submit to you that Ruthie isn't bringing us wishful thinking. No, she's already been through the shadow and she's seen the Savior on the other side. And she's saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can fear no evil because my Savior's good. He's got my hand and he's going to lead me through. And so she says, church, would you see it and believe? The deserts of our life are either going to refine us or they're going to define us. Now listen, I have so much more I want to say about this. Because I know as I'm talking this morning, there are places where we're walking through tougher things than I could even imagine. There are many of you walking through things that are not belly aching or hurting. Your heart is broken. And you need more this morning than a pep talk. The end of that verse goes on to talk about how God conquers fear with his rod and his staff. And I want to tell you as a teacher, I've spent much time there, and it was so important. I couldn't possibly be able to preach it all this morning. I wrote two blog posts coming out this week because I want it to be before you where you can see it and read it again and read it again and pray it and take it to your missional community and take it into your family. And I want to tell you the promises of God about what he means by his rod and his staff will absolutely transform your valley. I want to encourage you this week. You need to. I'm not being self-serving when I say this. You need to go to the blog this week and read it. You need to download it. You need to remember it, especially if you're in a valley. But this is what I knew. We can't start there. You can't start with the tools in the toolbox if you're still making friends with your problems. We've got to change our agreement about the wilderness of our life. Some this morning, you need to off the orphan mentality that woe is me and I'm the only one and nobody understands. And you need to join a great cloud of witnesses saying this, if I really want to know God more than anything, then I will go through the valley of the shadow of death, but I can fear not because he has my hand. I can choose right now to find my hope not in this being a safe world where nothing goes wrong, not in me being spared because I'm a Christian, not if I just work the plan well enough, it's all going to work out for me. No, there will be dark nights of our soul, there will be shadows we have to walk through, but just like it was for Joseph and Moses and the Israelites and David and Elijah, it will be with us. Our God is good, and he is walking us through the other side, looking and loving more like Jesus, if simply this morning we would surrender control and refuse to let our desert define us and look upon what the shepherd wants right now to refine. Would you stand with me?
I'm going to ask for every person right now hearing my voice. Would you just close your eyes? And I'm going to ask that you would just take your hand and you just place it on your heart. This is a moment where you're saying this isn't a promise or a word for anybody else. I'm not focusing on what's going on with anybody else. This is me and my father. This is me and my shepherd. Can I just ask you this morning? The same question I asked at the very beginning. Do you really want to know Jesus? Come on, it's you and him. Hand on your heart. Would you just tell him, I really want to know you. More than anything, I want to know you. And I know that means knowing you in victory. And I know that means knowing you in suffering. So can I just ask you with your hand on your heart, what valley are you in right now? Where is it that you're standing in a place and yesterday's faith is no longer working and the enemy of your soul is trying to shout? He's trying for shadows to loom large and you are tired of spending your attention trying to control and trying to escape and you desperately need hope. What valley are you in? What trial are you in? Where is life breaking your heart? Would you just do this with your hand on your heart? Would you ask the Lord right now, God, what do you say about my valley? What is it you're wanting to do in the valley? Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd talk to each heart. What is it you want to transform in the valley? Even now, I'm going to invite our prayer ministers up. And I just want to give a few prompts to your heart. For some of you this morning, you're going to be able to stand right at your chair and pray before the Lord. And that's the place that's going to be moving for you. And that's awesome. But for some of you, you're stuck. You need the prayer, the blessing, the agreement of someone else. And so I'm going to ask if at any point what I share is you and you're like, I need somebody to pray this with me. I'm going to ask you to slip out from your seat and just come right up front toward my voice. Find one of these prayer ministers and let them begin to pray with you. I want to ask right now, what dead dreams, what dead hopes, what dead plans do you need to bring? Can I be honest? Maybe right now you need to tell God there's some place that you've made something an idol. You say, God, the reason I'm so upset is I've empowered this thing in my life, and I've said this thing has to work out in order for me to be pleased. Instead of, Jesus, you are with me. So I'm pleased. I trust you. Make me more like you in the desert. I'll trust you with my desert. Come on, is there, is there an idol you need to lay down this morning? Maybe come to one of these ministers and say, it's this thing, I care too much about it and it feels stupid. I'm that person that cares about my job, I obsess over it. I want to tell you it's not stupid, it's not foolish, no temptation has seized us except what's common to man. We all get stuck with things we can't see. Would you call it out of the darkness and into the light? Say, this thing is stealing my peace and I don't want it to anymore. I want to be able to trust God in the midst of my valley. Perhaps this morning with your hand on your heart, you've made an idol out of trauma. Everywhere you go, you talk about what's broken and how bad it is, and how long you're just going to have to be here, and how this is your new normal. And God says, that's an abusive relationship, and it's time to break up and not look back. Take your stuff and get out. 
Come on with somebody this morning. Be willing to come to the Lord and say, there are places my heart is broken, but I refuse to let that fear define the way I walk. I refuse for the shadow to speak louder than the shepherd. Trauma will not define me. Maybe this morning, you need to change your declaration. You need the Holy Spirit to come and just touch you and move in a place that you would see the world as God has worked for my brother Ephraim and my sister Ruth. As he's working continually, that you would say, God, I'm going through this, but all I'm seeing are reasons to complain. Would you change my declaration? Would you change my perception? You've been good to me. You're being good to me in the valley. In the valley, you want to form character in me. And we I won't fear it anymore. I sense for somebody hearing my voice, what you need to let go of more than anything else is control. Your hope was that if I follow Jesus, everything works out according to my plan, and things feel like they're blowing up around you, and what you need to do is just let go and say, I got no more strategies, I got no more plans. Jesus, I just want you. Would you form your heart in me in this valley? Oh, Father God, for each heart, for each soul right now, what I'm asking for is for the grace in the midst of the things that are breaking our heart. No shame on anybody. Shame off of you in Jesus' name. I'm asking right now in the places where we want more than anything to dance and shout and leap and praise God, but life is just beating us up. Oh, King Jesus, would you come and speak louder? Would you speak louder? Father, we trust you now to silence the voice of shame and fear and trauma and loss and abuse. Those will not be our final destiny. They can't define us anymore. Would you make all things bow before you? Father God, would you come? Even though we know we will walk through many valleys with many shadows of death, Father God, by your spirit, we will fear no evil. For we see you're with us. Father God, would you surround? Would you heal? Would you break the lying voice of the accuser? Would you dissipate the darkness as we see the light of the world standing on the field with us, extending his hand to lead us through? Jesus will trust you.